Hey guys, welcome to the Crossroads and Culture podcast where life, ministry, and culture meet. Well, I don't know where you live, but here in Arkansas where winter for us is like typically in the 40s or 50s with rain, we have nine inches of snow and it's still coming down and much more is expected today. So yesterday I was out shoveling snow off our driveway, which that never happens, right? With, with a round pointed uh, shovel. Because why would I have a shovel, a snow shovel here in Arkansas? Uh, and I had not only a round pointed shovel, but I had a leaf rake. And there was so much snow uh, that I was desperate to try anything to get the snow off our driveway. So to prove my desperation, I even tried using, wait for it, my push mower. Now I get it. Some of you are laughing. You're rolling your eyes. You're like, this guy's an idiot. But yeah, you, you heard that right. I admit it. And it didn't work. Um, and so I know some of you are really shocked that it didn't work, but let me save you some trouble and some laughs from your neighbors. It doesn't work. So I went back to the round pointed shovel and that's been my dilemma. But on a more serious note, I know that there are many who uh, are without power right now. In Texas, it's been reported that over two and a half million people have been without power and they're continue to be rolling power outages and where you live, maybe in another state, you've experienced power outages or just not able to get out of your house or whatever it may be. Um, there are many others of you who have been impacted by the winter weather. And I sincerely pray for the safety of all of you who are being affected by this. Now, for those in the North and Northeast of the United States and other winter weather countries, winter weather is common for you guys, right? But here in the Southern part of the U S not so much. So, uh, you guys stay safe and warm out there. As we launch into uh, the podcast, uh, if you've not been listening, uh, there this is the last in a series of podcasts I've done on progressive Christianity. Now, even though there are several more that could have been done, I, I hope you get the point that progressive Christian thought is biblically unsound and, and is leading a lot of people within the church, and even those who are not, down a very destructive path path. So today on Crossroads and Culture podcast, I'm going to be talking about progressive Christianity's cancel culture ideology when it comes to the Bible, to God's Word. Now we know in this culture that we live in, there is just a lot of unraveling that is taking place. But Scripture speaks to this. God's Word makes it very clear that that there would come a time when when difficulty would happen, that that godlessness would increase. Paul said this to Timothy. As a matter of fact, let me read this to you from the Scriptures, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and it's going to lead us into where we're going today regarding um, canceling Scripture, um, this progressive Christian thought, um, and how it is so wrong. It's false teaching. So listen to what Paul writes. He says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all. 
as was that of those two men. You, however, speaking to Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, the sacred writings that... Paul was talking to Timothy about, uh, of course, are the scriptures, right? The, these, the Old Testament writings, the law, the prophets, uh, the wisdom writings, the wisdom teachings, and Psalms and Proverbs. And uh, so, so in, in looking at this and hearing this, Paul is saying to, to Timothy, man, don't forget what you have been taught. Don't forget the, the sacred writings that you have been acquainted with, that you know, that's able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. So, so Paul wrote to Timothy not only to give him instructions, but also to encourage him to persevere in the truth in the midst of difficult days where godlessness would just run rampant. He gives clear insight to Timothy regarding the evil that would increase accompanied by the deception of imposters and persecution of those who hold to the truth. And Paul encourages Timothy, who is his young disciple, to remain steady and hold firm to the truth of the Scriptures, these sacred writings that, that, again, Timothy had learned from childhood and come to believe. He reminds Timothy as well in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, just a few verses down, he said, "...all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work." Again, that's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. And it's a good reminder for us as well, especially in the days that we're in, where, where when the inerrant, infallible, inspired, and authoritative Word of God has been attacked, not only by those who are hostile to the Christian faith, but even by some within the church who profess to be followers of Jesus. With, with progressive Christianity, however, it, it really shouldn't be shocking since the very label itself, according to those who hold a, a progressive Christian view— it implies that to mature in faith, it must be an ever-evolving faith, an unenlightened faith, as we grow in our understanding that this antiquated book, the Bible, and narrow theology have seen its day, and there's a new and much more compassionate faith that has come. Well, without a doubt, our faith grows deeper the more we follow Christ in obedience and submit to the authority of His Word. However, Christ never progresses or changes, and nor does His Word. He changes us by the work of His Spirit and, and the eternal and unchangeable truths of His Word, leading to a transformation that is consistent with His Word and the character of Christ. Within the progressive Christianity movement, however, the authority of Scripture does not inform or give form to their beliefs and practices. Rather, the opposite is true. It's become really clear that lived experiences and feelings take precedent and are seen as valid in reinterpreting or even canceling the Scriptures. If you, their view would be this. If you can't accept the truth of Scripture, just cancel it. In other words, if God's story doesn't fit the narrative of progressive Christianity, just change it. Get rid of it or, or excuse it away. 
That's what is happening in progressive Christianity, and it's becoming more prevalent within the church. But why is it becoming more prevalent? I mean, there, there are several reasons, in my opinion, but, but for now I'm going to give you a couple to think on, a couple of reasons to, to think on why is progressive Christianity and its ideology, its false theology, why is it becoming more prevalent within the church? Well, let me. reason number one is this, uh, is the woke church or the woke pastor. Now, we, we've heard this phrase used a lot, and, and I think it's a pretty apt description, quite honestly. Um, although I've served as a pastor for over 30 years, you don't have to be a pastor to identify wokeness within the church. There are a couple of reasons, in my opinion, again, why I believe many churches have become woke in these days. And, and one reason is because they want to give the appearance of being loving and engaged when it comes to trending issues. In other words, virtue signaling. Now, as a caveat, I, I do believe some are genuinely seeking to be sincere and truly do want to affect change. They, they want to engage in cultural issues, yet without compromise. However, from my perspective, they are few and far between, at least from what I've witnessed. But for the woke church that cares more about virtue signaling, it's no different than the Pharisee standing on the street corner proclaiming loudly and thanking God that he or she is not like the others. Another reason, I think, um, is because the woke church, the woke pastor, fears being canceled by culture. And here's what that looks like. Uh, when, when the attendance drops, right, a drop in attendance or a lack of giving or maybe even a reduced platform. Maybe, maybe their influence in their minds as a church or as a pastor is decreasing. I mean, COVID really blew that out of the water when no longer were crowds gathering and we were somewhat relegated to online ministry. And I know there's a lot of conversations that are happening about, will people come back to the church? Is it, is it now going to be more about online ministry? I think that's a whole nother podcast episode. Uh, but nonetheless... I think there are some churches and pastors who really fear being canceled by culture, that if they speak the truths of Jesus and the, the whole counsel of God's Word, that attendance is going to drop, which means giving is going to drop, and we can't fund our ministries and programs and the buildings that we have and all these different things, and we're going to lose an audience. And God forbid you lose Instagram followers or find yourself in Facebook jail for preaching the whole counsel of God's Word. Now, I want to give a disclaimer here. I understand and I'm aware of the argument of building an audience in order to reach more with the message. I mean, I remember even thinking that, well, gosh, I, I want to be able to have conversations in such a way where I can build an audience. And, and although that might be, um, it's understandable to have that thought. The reality is, eventually, if you're going to stay true to the Word of God, you're going to have to speak things that people are not going to like hearing. Because the truth is sometimes hard to hear, but it's always best. So, so let's be real. Truth is what people hunger for today, not pandering. I don't think Jesus was concerned much with keeping an audience. I mean, he was looking for followers, not admirers. Now listen to what, what Jesus said in the Gospel of John. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, let me just stop there just for a moment, because I'm about to read you quite a bit of, of uh, several verses here. And the context of this is after Jesus has, has fed the 5,000 plus people, um, that now people are following him. 
And they've been intrigued and fascinated, astonished by what he did in feeding the 5,000. I think it said 5,000 men, not including the women and children. So there's a lot more that were fed. And there were like 12 baskets of fish and loaves that were left over. And so, so with this, this is kind of the context. So Jesus says to them, he says, I'm the bread of life, and if you come to me, you won't hunger. And if you believe in me, you won't thirst. And then the, the, the scriptures pick back up in the Gospel of John and it says this. Jesus said, but I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets, and they will be all taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now I just got to stop there for a moment. I mean, I, I don't know. How ignorant do you have to be that you would not see that Jesus is figuratively speaking here about eating his flesh, which we're going to read about a little bit further. I mean, obviously, Jesus is pointing to something bigger here. Now, listen to what he goes on to say. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who, those, uh, those who, were, who did not believe and, and, it was, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And after this, catch this last verse. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now that, that passage was John chapter 6, verses 35 
through 66. Now that last verse I just read blows up the misguided reasoning of softening the message to reach the masses. Jesus is after followers, not admirers. As a matter of fact, there there were several statements Jesus said and conversations he had that many today wouldn't consider loving. Here's just one example. Jesus, the scriptures record this in the Gospel of Luke. As they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another person said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now that's in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. Talk about being unloving. Wow. How insensitive was that? Or was it insensitive? Was this something that Jesus was saying that was actually very loving? Shameless plug here, but beginning next week, I'll be having a series of podcasts on the hard sayings of Jesus, and we're going to dive more into that. But what's going on here with Jesus saying this? Well, in today's culture, being loving is often equated with not offending. But that that really is erroneous thinking. Just ask any responsible parent. I mean, many a child has been offended because a loving parent was willing to appropriately discipline for the good of their child. As a parent, you don't look for opportunities to offend. Quite the contrary. In the same way, we're not to seek to offend, but as the writer of Proverbs reminds us, faithful are the wounds of a friend and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. That's Proverbs 27, verse 6. To not speak the whole truth of Scripture, even when it offends the conscience and penetrates the heart, that's the greater offense. And it certainly isn't loving. I have a question. Would you rather be known for being partly loving or completely loving. Let me, let's think of it this way. If a train were coming and you were standing on the tracks unaware because you couldn't hear, since you, you, know, you had your AirPods in on noise cancellation, I mean, those things work really well, and you were seeing how many people loved your photo of train tracks that you just posted on Instagram, and after yelling at you, trying to get your attention with no success, I ran and shoved you off the tracks. Would you be upset? Or would you have rather me stood by the tracks, making these you know, cute heart-shaped hand gestures to you, mouthing the words, I love you, and I'm here for you, so as to not interrupt your me time on the tracks, even though I was aware of the oncoming danger, but you weren't? I mean, tragically, there, there are some who would rather throw up hand gestures and mouth the words, I love you, rather than risking that someone might be offended because you pushed them off the tracks. I mean, after all, that's the safe way. It's the non-offensive way. They may not like you for a moment, but maybe when they're able to make their next Instagram post, they'll realize you did them a favor because you really did love them enough to push them out of harm's way. But know this, sometimes you may end up losing your life, so to speak, on the tracks because those you push out of harm's way may get mad that you shoved them and made them lose their AirPods, never acknowledging that you sacrificed much to help rescue them. 
If so, what you did wasn't in vain because real love is never futile. I mean, I get it though. Love does not always call for that type of action. But when it does, love does not stand and watch. Love acts. And I realize the illustrations break down, but hopefully you get the point. I mean, personally, I'm thankful for those who have loved me enough to push me off the tracks in those moments when I was on the tracks. Their, their shove seemed harsh and the fall was painful, but I discovered that it gave me another opportunity to breathe again and learn not to stand on the tracks. That's love. Now, I, I, I love reading about the early church and, and, and longed, I long to experience the outpouring of God's Spirit once again. The church we read about in Acts wasn't a woke church. They, they were an awake church. Without a doubt, they weren't perfect, but don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Awake churches aren't perfect. They're fully aware of their imperfection, yet willing and desire to submit to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, as well as to the proclamation of the complete gospel. And by that, I mean that the gospel is explicit, not just in exemplifying love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness, which we love to preach about and speak about, and rightly so. But also, it's a call to surrender, repentance, pursuing holiness, speaking truth, and suffering for the sake of righteousness. You know, the early church leaders like Peter, James, John, Stephen, and others were bold in their proclamation of the scriptures and called repentance as much as they were in caring for and meeting the needs of others. I'm sure that there were the naysayers, apart from the religious elite, who criticized them for being unloving in what they said. After all, if, if you speak hard truth and I feel convicted, then you're canceled. Interesting thing, though, about those who spoke the bold truth of Scripture in the early church, which, by the way, was the Old Testament, and they shared accounts of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Thousands of people were saved, and the church experienced exponential growth. It's the whole counsel of the truth of Scripture that sets people free, not a revised or canceled version. And it's not just canceling or revising the Scripture that reveals wokeness. It's, it's also avoiding teaching the whole Scripture through which God's Spirit speaks and works to lead believers to salvation and, and unbelievers to salvation and, and believers to be conformed to the image of Christ. I mean, when's the last time you've heard biblical preaching on the wrath of God poured out on sin? I mean, even as you're hearing this, there... There are probably some who are thinking, okay, here we go with the hellfire brimstone teaching. Now, I would agree that there have been pastors who have used this to scare people into heaven and some who seem to act as though they like preaching such a message rather than preaching it with a broken heart. However, that is the biblical view of eternal punishment for those who refuse salvation that God graciously offers in Christ. But here's the point. Without a biblical understanding of sin— and God's wrath poured out on sin, grace just becomes a cheap imitation of what grace really is. When we become fully aware of the depravity of our sin and God's righteous anger towards sin and his grief-filled brokenness over our sin, the gospel of God's grace, love, mercy, forgiveness, and salvation are better and more fully understood. Actually, it's overwhelming. It's then that we begin to see the worth and greatness of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. When our eyes open to that truth, our response is worship. With progressive Christianity, though, to speak of the wrath of God and eternal punishment in a literal hell is too offensive. In their mind, the God 
they want and seek to create would never be wrathful or so unloving that he would banish people to hell. However, in denying such justice, which God not only demands but will also execute, progressive Christians contradict their own ideological construct of social justice, which is really not justice at all. Again, they deny the whole counsel of God's word to satisfy their woke and flawed theology. And sadly, they miss that it was on the cross where Jesus willingly laid down his life, substituting himself on our behalf, that justice and mercy kissed. You see, we need awake churches led by shepherding pastors and spiritual leaders that will be courageous enough to say, as Peter and John did, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That's in Acts chapter 4, verse 19 and, uh, verse 19 and 20. Well, maybe that's the problem, though. Maybe there are too few who are seeing what God is doing and hearing what, what he's saying. I mean, could it be that, that we've been leaning in and listening more closely to the culture speak rather than leaning into God's word and listening to what God is saying? Maybe, maybe we need to take the counsel Jesus gave to the churches in Revelation when he said, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I want to encourage you, pray for your pastors and other pastors around the world that they would unashamedly and boldly preach and teach that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, as Paul told Timothy. And as God's Word instructs us, pray for God to let the truth of His Word be like fire in the bones of your pastor. And pray for that their eyes will be open to the enemy's schemes and his lies. Pray that they would be courageous and not fearful. Pray that they would have a love for God's word. Pray that they would seek God daily in prayer. Pray that God would deliver them from the temptations of the evil one. And pray for your church and, and other churches around the world to awaken to the truth of the scriptures and hear what the Spirit of God is saying. So that's, that's one reason why I believe that progressive Christianity is affecting church today, the woke church, the woke pastor. Here's the second reason why I believe that progressive Christianity is becoming more prevalent in the church, and that's because of biblical illiteracy. And I'm going to go ahead and say this. I mean, too, too many are accepting as truth what is posted on social media and preached in pulpits without examining the scriptures as the Bereans did in Acts chapter 17 to see if these things were so. That, my friends, is apathy that leads to spiritual atrophy. That's like going to a gym to work out, asking someone to lift weights for you, and you expecting to receive the reward of being physically fit. It doesn't work that way. I know many of us wish it did. Or, or maybe a better analogy is asking someone to study for your final while you watch Netflix and then believing that their efforts will somehow translate into you acing the test, right? Not happening. Although you may not be in school and facing exams anymore, there's a pop quiz every day in life, and knowing the truth of God's Word is essential if you want to know the answers. Now, some will say, I'm sure, that, that it's more about practically living out your faith. And to that I say amen. But you can't practically live out what you practically don't know. Knowledge without practice leads to a weak faith. But practice without knowledge leads to a woke faith. According to the State of the Bible 2020 report, it was released by the Barna Group and the American Bible Society. Um, adults within the U.S. who say they read the Bible daily 
dropped from 14% to 9% between early 2019 and 2020. The study also revealed that, that the proportion of Americans who read the Bible daily also fell to fewer than 1 in 10 9%. That's the lowest number on record during the 10 years of the State of the Bible research study. And the truth is, though, I, I don't know that we need a study to tell us this. And although it sounds simple, if you don't read God's Word, you won't know God's Word. I mean, the number of those who profess to be Christians who are abandoning a biblical worldview for a worldview that's more progressive is becoming glaringly clear. And when it comes to the scriptures, it, it's become normative, it seems, for those who do not agree with the biblical text to redefine it, reframe it, create a new narrative, or just cancel it altogether. Rather than taking the Old Testament and New Testament as the whole story of God that has been give, given to us uh, through divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the scriptures have become categorized into what is relevant for today and what is deemed not relevant. And often those categorizations, the way that we categorize those things are driven by lived experiences and feelings rather than what is true biblically. So let me, let me share with you just a couple of examples that have conveniently been redefined as political issues when in fact they're biblical issues and, and foundational at that. I mean, you can look at Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, just those first two chapters in the scriptures and you see that, that this is addressed clearly. And then all Obviously, throughout the rest of Scripture, it's validated and affirmed. But you never know this if you if you are biblically illiterate, if you don't know what God's Word says. So, so one example is the sanctity of life. So here's a question. Is God's Word clear about the sanctity of human life? Well, absolutely it is. There's no ambiguity with God on this. Every person has been created in the image of God, which means every person has a sense of purpose and value and identity that is God-given not contrived by man. And because this is true, to take the life of a preborn child is nothing less than taking the life of an image bearer of God. And for one who professes to be a follower of Jesus, yet justify that abortion is acceptable is to go against the very nature and design of God. There, there, there's no justification, only an errant distortion of God's word. And although the argument is sought to be made that this is an issue of healthcare for women, ultimately, if we're being honest, and if you're being honest with yourself, you know it's not. I mean, what about the health of the child? Recently, the Biden administration and all but three Democrats blocked the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. And here's what it would require. It, it would have required that any healthcare practitioner present at the time of a birth exercise the same degree of professional skill, care, and diligence to preserve the life and health of the child as a reasonably diligent and conscientious health healthcare practitioner would render to any child born alive at the same gestational age. In other words, a baby who survives an abortion procedure can be denied medical care to ensure that that child lives. I mean, so much for many progressive Christians' pseudo-compassionate belief that pro-life is about womb to tomb. Now, just as a side note, if you want to know more about this issue and what Scripture teaches, I did a podcast you can listen to. It's called The Fallacious Argument of From Womb to Tomb. It's on the Crosswords and Culture podcast. It's one of the earlier episodes. You can listen to that, and hopefully that will be helpful to you. But Scripture is clear. Uh, when, there is a, a, when, when there is a lack of knowledge and when God's Word is defined, reimagined, and removed, as it is in progressive Christianity, the people perish. Hosea chapter 4, verse 6 tells us that. 
I, I do want to say though, for, for anyone who's experienced the pain of going through this, an abortion who, who has made the decision to have that done, or a father who's participating in the decision regarding abortion, although there are consequences that come with all sinful choices, God is a merciful and gracious God who is willing to forgive and take away the guilt and shame because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. So if you're carrying that, I sincerely pray you will turn to Jesus and find healing in his forgiveness and his love for you. So just know that. The second example of biblical illiteracy and how we've not, I believe, looking at the scriptures and what and what the Bible says, what God's word says very clearly uh, is on the issue of marriage. So here's another question. Is God's design for marriage to be between a man and a woman? Well, according to God's word, absolutely. Once again, there's nothing vague about what God is saying in the scriptures. I mean, listen to what is written to us in Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the God uh, that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. As with progressive Christianity, there have been numerous attempts to try and justify same-sex relationships and marriage, often at the expense of very poor and errant hermeneutics. Yet not only was God clear in what was written in the Old Testament, Jesus was clear and is clear about what is written and what is uh, what he means by marriage when he quoted the Old Testament regarding marriage between a man and a woman. Again, Scripture is very clear. For a professing believer, this should not be an unsettled issue as it pertains to what God's Word says and right belief. Now, these are just two examples that have become controversial issues, not only within our culture, although they seem to be widely accepted now, but also within the church. And even though they should be discussed and conversations should be had. Um, these should not be controversial as to what God's Word says and where we should stand as followers of Christ. So the woke church, the woke pastor, and biblical illiteracy, I think, are two, just two reasons why progressive Christianity is becoming more prevalent in the church. And, and I could I could give more. I could go on and on. Um, but the truth is, we need to dive into the scriptures and study them for ourselves. Now, just uh, by way of, of resources, um, there is uh, a great book by K. Arthur. Um, it's, it's just a study book called, Lord, Teach Me to Study the Bible in 28 Days. Um, and it's a great guide in how to inductively study God's Word, which means getting into the Word of God, reading the Scriptures, and knowing how to inductively study it by observing the Scriptures, um, letting the God, God's Spirit show you what the interpretation is. So observation, interpretation, and then how do you apply what God's Word says? Now, maybe you've been a, a follower of Jesus, a Christian for a long time, but you've never really understood how to study God's Word or what it looks like to study God's Word. 
and and that's okay. It's 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 okay to admit that. I mean, um, I, I'm still learning more and more. And I've been, as I said, I've been doing this for a long time. Gone to college, a Baptist college, went to seminary, um, have all the tools, learned all of um, of how to do this, but still putting this into practice and learning this. And so for you as well, maybe maybe you're saying, I really don't know how to study God's Word. Well, I would encourage you maybe to, to pick up a copy of, of, this, of this study guide, this book. It's called Lord, Teach Me to Study the Bible in 28 Days, and it gives you a good foundation of how to inductively study God's Word. Commentaries are fine, okay? Reading those are fine. Reading other people's opinions, they're okay. You have to be really guarded about that. But here's the thing. The best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. Let God's Word interpret God's Word. And so I want to encourage you, get a good study Bible. Um, an, another great resource that is is the Inductive Study Bible. And the Inductive Study Bible is... Um, is one that K. Arthur's ministry has put out, um, and I'm not getting <laughs> I'm not getting compensated for plugging this. I'm just telling you, um, it's some really great resource material that will help you in knowing knowing how to study the scriptures and learning the scriptures. So those are just a couple of resources that I would encourage you to check out. So as, as I close up this episode, the bottom line is this: either you believe that the Word of God is God's Word given to us, or you don't. I mean, there is no middle ground. The scriptures aren't like a buffet at Denny's where you can choose what you like and leave out what you don't like. That, that, though, is the dietary plan, so to speak, of progressive Christianity, and it's never satisfying. All scripture is God-breathed, even Leviticus, right? Which means that all of God's word matters and is relevant as much for today as when it was given or as it will ever be. And it means that regardless of what progressive Christianity falsely teaches, God's word can never be canceled. Hey, thanks so much for joining me on this episode of Crossroads and Culture. And I look forward to launching a new series of podcasts beginning next week on the hard sayings of Jesus. So I hope you'll check that out. If you would, please subscribe to the Crossroads and Culture podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you like to use, and feel free to review and rate it so that more people might be encouraged to listen as well. And also, if you don't mind, share this on your other social media platforms and with those you believe might benefit from the podcast. So until next time, I hope you have a great day. Stay warm and safe, and don't forget that lawnmowers don't work well for clearing snow-covered driveways. Have a great rest of the day.